0: This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. Before you started following true crime cases, like me, you may have thought that the justice system worked the way it was portrayed on TV. A crime is committed, police investigate, The bad guy is caught, a trial is held, and justice is served. But as you started learning the details of stories involving crime and punishment, you probably noticed that things rarely work out that simply. You probably learned that most arrests don't even go to trial. They're often pled out or even dismissed for one reason or another. And even cases that do go to trial sometimes don't end in what we would call justice. Sometimes a person you might consider clearly guilty is acquitted of the charges. Even worse, you may have discovered that sometimes people are wrongly convicted and may spend years of their lives behind bars for something they didn't do. Fortunately, this is not the norm, but terrible mistakes or even misconduct on the part of prosecutors or investigators can occur. But as unfair and unjust as wrongful convictions may be, there is an outcome that you may consider even worse. That is when a known criminal, even a murderer, is set free and then kills again. In this series, Three Strikes and You're Dead, I will relate stories of some of the most cold-blooded murderers who inexplicably were set free to kill again. In this first chapter, Kenneth Allen McDuff perpetrated one of the most brutal and vicious crimes ever committed in the state of Texas. Even after receiving the death sentence, he was later granted parole and went on to commit even more sadistic and violent crimes. This is the case of Kenneth Allen McDuff, a.k.a. the Broomstick Killer. (music) Kenneth Allen McDuff was born March 21, 1946, in Rosebud, Texas. He was one of six children born to J.A. and Addie McDuff. Kenneth had three older sisters and an older brother. Although not the youngest, he was always treated like the baby of the family, and doted upon and spoiled by his siblings. His mother Addie coddled him even more than she did her other children. While she was fiercely protective of her whole brood, Kenneth was her favorite, and garnered most of her attention and praise. Kenneth's father ran a successful cement finishing business, while Addie was the proprietor of a second business, a laundromat, located across the street from her home, allowing her to keep a close eye on her children. For the most part, the Macduffs were a typical family. Mr. and Mrs. Macduff worked hard, the family attended church regularly, and the children were expected to become productive members of society. However, Addie Macduff always went to bat for her children should anyone ever speak out against them. She refused to entertain the idea that her children could do any wrong, especially her boys, who, truth be told, were hellraisers. The biggest hellraiser of them all was her golden boy, Kenneth. Both of her sons early on decided that they were not required to play by the same rules as everyone else. Her oldest, Blonnie, irritated at being reprimanded by his high school principal, once pulled a knife on the man. The principal, no pushover, promptly picked up the boy by his shirt collar and threw him down a flight of stairs. Once Addie heard about the incident, her response was not to reprimand or punish her son, but to march over to the school, a pistol in her purse, and let the principal know that if he ever laid a hand on her son again, he would have to deal with her. Lonnie apparently never learned to play by the rules of society. He was later shot to death by the estranged husband of a woman he was carrying on an affair with. But Kenneth was an even bigger hellraiser than his older brother. He was spoiled, not only by his mother, but also his older sisters. He was never made to do chores or assume any responsibilities in the home, like the other children. Classmates remember that Kenneth was always dressed in the nicest clothes and had money to flash around. As a teen, his mother gifted him a motorcycle that he rode around Rosebud looking like Marlon Brando in a scene from The Wild Ones. Kenneth began creating trouble at school and in the community by the time he was a preteen. Whenever he was reprimanded by anyone and Addie found out about it, she stormed over, defending her boy and issuing threats. She always made it clear that she was packing heat and wasn't afraid to use it. Behind her back, teachers and school administrators called her pistol-packing Mama McDuff, But by then, they had become so frightened of Mrs. Macduff that they refrained from correcting Kenneth's bad behavior. As a result, Kenneth began acting up even more. Mr. Macduff wasn't as lenient with his children. He expected them to behave and work hard. But in the Macduff household, Addie ruled with an iron fist, and her husband deferred to her in family matters. So, in essence, young Kenneth answered to no one. He became a bully in school, intimidating students and teachers alike. He liked to gamble, and even if he didn't win, he would forcefully relieve his classmates of their lunch money. He did poorly in his classes and seemed to brag about flunking tests. He just didn't care about school, and thumbed his nose at book learning. But like most bullies, Macduff in actuality had very low self-esteem. One boy in his 8th grade class was smart, popular, and a good athlete, while Macduff had become the most hated kid in school. Macduff was intent on proving his superiority over this boy and was finally able to goad him into an after-school fight. His opponent won the fight easily, kicking Macduff's ass in front of the whole school in a matter of minutes. After that, Macduff stopped bullying the other kids and a few months later quit school altogether. No longer the king of the school who could lord power over others, Macduff had no use for it. Instead, He spent his formative years drinking, prowling, and committing burglaries. He may have also spent his time doing far worse. When he was 17 years old, he confessed to his brother Lonnie that he had raped a woman, cut her throat, and dropped her in a ditch at the side of the road. Lonnie's reaction? He told his little brother to go to bed and forget about it. A rape and murder was never reported in the area at that time, so either the woman survived and didn't seek or get help from the police or it never happened, but most believe it probably did, given Macduff's later track record. In February of 1965, just after he'd turned 18 years old, McDuff was arrested for burglary and attempt to commit burglary and was sentenced to four years in prison. He was suspected of committing over a dozen burglaries all over the county, and his sentence totaled 52 years, but because he was only 18 years old at the time of the conviction, his sentences were set to run concurrently, instead of consecutively. Because of this, Macduff served less than 10 months in prison and was released on parole. Just like when he was a boy and his mother had shielded him from suffering the consequences of his actions, Macduff skated away from his first prison sentence with very little time served. It seems at this point, he began to truly believe that he was exempt from society's rules and that he could probably get away with anything, even murder. Eight months after his release from prison on burglary charges, McDuff was out on a Saturday driving around in the souped-up Dodge Charger his mother had given him as a gift to celebrate his parole. He and another man, Roy Dale Green, were cruising around Everman, a town just south of Fort Worth, Texas, and just north of Crawley, which you may remember from the Texas cadet murder case I covered last November. But this terrifying story I'm about to relate to you took place almost three decades before Diane Zamora and David Jones even met. On August 6, 1966, McDuff and Green clocked out of their jobs at the cement finishing company where they were both employed by McDuff's father. Green, just 17 years old, had been hanging out with his coworker. He was impressed by the bigger, tougher 20-year-old who'd done a stint in prison and liked to tell stories of his criminal and violent acts. He'd bragged to Green that he had raped and strangled several women, making it sound like it was no big deal. Killing a woman's like killing a chicken. They both squawk, Macduff had once laughed. Green thought he was just making up stories, but he wasn't quite sure. Macduff sure seemed like the type who was prone to violence, and he would soon learn just how right he was. Macduff drove Green to Everman to visit a girl he'd met at the church his family attended. They'd had a few beers, and then the girl had been taken home. Macduff and Green continued to drink and cruise around town. They passed a trio of teenagers who were standing near a car at a baseball field. Sixteen-year-old Edna Sullivan was spending the evening with her boyfriend, 17-year-old Robert Brand, and his 15-year-old cousin Mark Dunham, who was visiting from California. McDuff parked his car and pulled a gun from under the front seat. He walked up to the teens and demanded that the boys hand over their wallets. He then forced all three of them into the trunk of their car, a 1955 Ford. McDuff returned to Green and told him that the teens could identify him, so he'd have to kill them. He ordered Green to take his car and follow him as he drove the Ford. He headed out of town and into the country before turning into a field. He pulled Edna out of the trunk of the Ford and told Green to lock her in the trunk of his Dodge while he held the gun on the two boys. The boys began begging for their life, but McDuff showed them no mercy, shooting them both in the face multiple times. As Green watched, Macduff pulled the younger boy up by his hair and shot him once more with a gleeful grin on his face. He left the dead boys in the trunk of their car, and he and Green drove off with the terrified Edna. Macduff drove several miles, crossing into Johnson County, before pulling off onto a dirt road. Macduff took Edna out of the trunk and threw her in the back seat. He raped her twice before instructing Green to do the same. When he was done, Macduff continued the brutal assault on the young girl with increased violence. Afterward, he drove the battered and bleeding girl to another location further off the road. Taking her out of the car, Macduff made her sit on the road, where he grabbed a piece of broomstick and held it across her neck, pressing down hard. As she began to kick and fight, he ordered Green to hold her legs as he continued to crush the life out of her. They threw her body over a fence like so much trash, tossed the boys' wallets, And headed back to Rosebud. Green was so affected by the horror he had participated in, that when he heard a news report the next day that the bodies of the murdered teens had been discovered, he immediately confessed to friends and then to the police. He testified against McDuff, and because he cooperated with the prosecution as well as his status as a minor, he was given only five years in prison. When he was released from prison, he lived out the rest of his life uneventfully, continuing to reside in the same town. After Green's confession, Sheriff Brady Pamplin set out to arrest McDuff. Pamplin had seen a lot during his long career in law enforcement. He'd served as a Texas Ranger before his time in the Sheriff's Department, but he'd never seen a crime as vicious and sadistic as what McDuff had subjected little Edna Sullivan to. He vowed to bring in McDuff, dead or alive, and it was almost the latter. McDuff was not about to be taken without a fight, and before it was all over, Pamplin had fired several rounds into the fugitive's car as he tried to escape the dragnet. But Macduff was caught, arrested, and taken into custody. Addie Macduff hired a lawyer and insisted on her son's innocence. Macduff tried to pin the murders on Green, saying he wasn't even present the night the teens were killed. Addie told reporters that her son was out on a date with a girl from church. He'd spent the evening with her and was, quote, willing to risk death in the electric chair to spare her reputation, end quote. He's too good for his own good, she sighed. Macduff was tried and convicted of rape and murder with malice and sentenced to death. He was first scheduled to die in 1969, but his execution was stayed. It was stayed once more in 1970. Then in 1972, the United States Supreme Court handed down a decision in the case of Furman v. Georgia. In a 5-4 decision, The justices ruled that the imposition of the death penalty in certain cases constituted cruel and unusual punishment. The decision further stated that the way the death penalty was imposed in the United States was often arbitrary and racially biased. Justice Stewart wrote, These death sentences are cruel and unusual in the same way that being struck by lightning is cruel and unusual. For of all the people convicted of rapes and murders in 1967 and 1968, Many just as reprehensible as these, the petitioners are among a capriciously selected random handful upon whom the sentence of death has in fact been imposed. I conclude that the Eighth and Fourteenth Amendments cannot tolerate the infliction of a sentence of death under legal systems that permit this unique penalty to be so wantonly and so freakishly imposed. Justices Brennan and Marshall further stated that, quote, the death penalty was in itself cruel and unusual punishment and incompatible with the evolving standards of decency of a contemporary society, unquote. The decision led to a moratorium on capital punishment throughout the United States. Death sentences that were pending at that time, including Macduff's, were automatically reduced to life in prison. McDuff was released from death row, placed in a secure unit, and assigned work duty in the fields. He was still considered dangerous and a flight risk and was closely monitored, because of the sentencing laws, he became eligible for parole in 1976. A new constitutional death penalty law was enacted in 1974, but those who had their sentences commuted were no longer eligible. Once he became eligible for parole and was repeatedly denied, Addie hired a new lawyer for her son. Gary Jackson argued before the court that Macduff had been framed by Roy Del Green for the murders. However, he could not explain how both cars, one belonging to McDuff, had been driven by Green the night of the murders. When his defense didn't work to spring his client, Jackson presented new evidence alleging jury tampering and misconduct during McDuff's original trial. That argument didn't impress the court either. His best chance, Macduff decided, was trying to gain favor with the parole board. He took correspondence classes and earned a general equivalency high school diploma he became the boss of his prison tier, which earned him additional privileges. It also allowed him to hold power over other prisoners, which he then used to obtain sexual favors and drugs. But he didn't cause too many problems for the warden, so when he was up for parole in 1980, he received one vote in his favor from the board. In order to be granted a parole date, Texas inmates at that time needed the approval of two out of three parole board members. McDuff was granted another hearing the following year. But tired of waiting, and in an attempt to sway a second vote for his release, McDuff asked to be interviewed alone by one of the board members. He tried to convince him to cast the second vote in his favor, saying, If you can get me out of this pen, I guarantee you that $10,000 will be left in the glove compartment of your car. My family's got the money. The board member reported the conversation to the district attorney, who filed a bribery charge against McDuff. This charge became McDuff's third conviction, which could result in a second life sentence. He then wouldn't be eligible for another parole hearing for 10 years. At the conclusion of the bribery trial, the judge gave the instructions to first vote on McDuff's guilt or innocence on the bribery charge. The jury found him guilty. They were then to conduct a second deliberation to confirm that the inmate that they just found guilty of bribery was the same Kenneth McDuff who had been found guilty in his two previous trials, for which he'd already served time. It was merely a technicality to confirm that the sentence was being imposed on the correct party. But the jury misunderstood the court's instructions and thought that they were to determine Macduff's guilt or innocence on his two previous convictions, which of course they could not do since they had not heard evidence in those cases. As a result, instead of fixing the sentence as life, they opted for a two-year sentence. Macduff had already served two years leading up to the trial. The result was that he was immediately eligible for parole. At the same time, Texas was experiencing a massive prison overcrowding problem. Tough anti-crime bills continued to be passed, but the state had neglected to build new prison facilities to keep up with the demand. The overcrowding became such a serious issue that a federal judge deemed the conditions at Texas prisons unconstitutional. A ceiling was imposed for the number of prisoners allowed to be housed in each facility. To not be in violation of this new law, the Texas Department of Corrections was required to release 750 inmates per week in 1989. The parole board was overwhelmed with inmate files to review, and many were simply rubber stamped for release. At the peak, prisoners were serving just 22 days for each year of their sentence, and parole approval rates reached 80%. It was in the midst of this that Kenneth Allen McDuff once again came up for parole. Naturally, you would think that an inmate with a triple murder charge, carried out so violently and brutally, would be immediately rejected. But the parole board was so inundated with cases to review and inmates to interview, approximately 1,000 files every five days, they could often only do a cursory job of reviewing the details of each. One mark in his favor was that Macduff had received a single vote for his release in six of the 15 years since he had become eligible. In 1989, McDuff received his second affirmative vote from the parole board and was released on October 11th. Back in Rosebud, citizens couldn't believe the news. Many were terrified of the sadistic killer returning to their streets and began arming themselves to protect themselves and their families. McDuff moved to the nearby city of Temple, where his parents were now living. The sheriff was now Larry Pamplin, son of Brady Pamplin who had investigated the murders and brought MacDuff into custody 20 years earlier. Brady Pamplin predicted upon hearing of MacDuff's release, I don't know if it'll be next week or next month or next year, but one of these days, dead girls are going to start turning up. And when that happens, the man you need to look for is Kenneth MacDuff. Kenneth Ellen McDuff was paroled with 16 felony convictions, 12 burglaries, three murders, and an attempted bribery of a parole board member on his record. He was walking the streets as a free man, but was required to check in with a parole officer in Temple, Texas. Three days after his release, a 31-year-old sex worker named Serafina Parker went missing from Temple. She was found in a field outside of town days later, naked, beaten, and strangled. In July 1990, less than a year after his release, McDuff was picked up for a parole violation. He was charged with making terroristic threats, a misdemeanor, after he confronted a group of black teenagers in downtown Rosebud. He chased one of the boys down the street, brandishing a knife and threatening to kill him. At his parole revocation hearing, McDuff began yelling racially charged insults about the teens and black people in general. He was returned to prison. However, the citizens of Rosebud, no doubt, had lost trust that the justice system could protect them, and witnesses declined to come forward. The misdemeanor charge was dropped. Now MacDuff's fate was in the hands of the parole board. However, the district attorney made it very clear to the board that he considered MacDuff to be unfit for release into society. He called MacDuff the most extraordinarily violent criminal ever to set foot in Falls County, and advised against him ever being granted parole again but since the parole violation charge had been dropped, McDuff's attorney asked for his parole to be reinstated. Instead of the decision being made by the impaneled parole board members, it was passed off to a hearings officer who alone made the decision to reinstate McDuff's parole. On December 6, 1990, Kenneth McDuff was, for a second time, released from prison. Once again, he had skated on charges no doubt making him feel even more empowered to continue his life of violent crime. In early 1991, McDuff enrolled at Texas State Technical College in Waco and moved into a campus dorm room. He continued to be a menace there as well. He threatened several students and beat one so badly that he almost blinded him. There were no reports of these incidents made to police. The students were afraid of retaliation by their psycho and violent classmate. Now sex workers around the Waco area began to go missing. One woman, 22-year-old Valencia Joshua, was last seen on the TSTC campus on February 24th looking for McDuff. Her naked and decomposed body was found several weeks later in a shallow grave behind the college property. Unknown to him, the U.S. Marshal's office in Waco was keeping tabs on McDuff after his release. They had already predicted that the ex-con may continue to carry out violent attacks on women, but unless he committed a federal crime, they had no jurisdiction. They were in close contact with Sheriff Larry Pamplin in Falls County, who had shared the news with them about Macduff's release, and briefed them about his past history of violence. But Macduff had moved around frequently before landing in Waco, remaining outside of Falls County jurisdiction. There was another reason Pamplin had brought McDuff to the U.S. Marshals' attention, McDuff also had a history of drug possession and distribution. Another drug charge would qualify him to be taken into federal custody. Also in 1991, another woman named Virginia Moore was seen kicking and screaming in the front seat of McDuff's pickup as he drove through a Waco police checkpoint. Amazingly, officers did not pursue him, but merely looked up the truck's registration several days later, at which time they interviewed McDuff and let him go. Moore was not seen again. At this point, Macduff must have felt invincible after sliding on so many serious charges. Perhaps that's what emboldened him to commit his next act. On December 29, 1991, Colleen Reed, a 28-year-old accountant from Austin, went missing. She had been at a self-serve car wash in the city. Her car and belongings were left abandoned, and she was not seen again. Meanwhile, the U.S. Marshals Office was informed that Kenneth Allen McDuff had sold drugs to an informant. The Marshals Service, now seeing an uptick in violent crime since the release of so many inmates, launched a nationwide effort called Operation Gunsmoke. Over 200 investigators were assigned to get violent criminals off the streets. Then, on March 1, 1992, McDuff entered a convenience store in Waco, where 22-year-old Melissa Northrup was working the night shift. Northrup, a married mother of two young children and pregnant with her third, had just hung up from a phone call with her husband, who was home with the children. She told him she had to go. A man had entered the store. He told her to be careful and hung up. He called her a while later when she didn't call him back, but there was no answer. Finally, frantic, he rushed to the store where the lights were on and the door unlocked, but Melissa was gone. Almost two months later, her body was found, miles away in a Dallas County gravel pit. Her hands were bound behind her back, and she'd been strangled with a rope. Immediately after Northrop's abduction, MacDuff disappeared. He parked his Thunderbird at a motel in South Waco and vanished. His mother was so worried that he had not returned to his college campus to take finals that she filed a missing persons report. The law in Waco immediately suspected MacDuff of Northrop's disappearance and began to also look at him as a suspect in the murders and disappearances of other women in the area. A task force was formed to bring the fugitive to justice. In addition to over 20 federal marshals from Operation Gunsmoke, also represented, were lawmen from several county and local police departments, DEA agents, agents from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, and members of the Texas Rangers. A mobile command center called Red October was dispatched to Waco. Don't you love those colorful names these agencies use? The command center was in contact with law enforcement agencies across the country. A nationwide manhunt was launched for McDuff, now one of the most wanted fugitives in the country. The task force set out to lean on known associates of Macduff. They brought in a former cellmate who pointed them to others that McDuff had been hanging out with since his release, a drug dealer and another former convict. These individuals gave up information that placed McDuff in Austin during the week of Christmas, at the same time that Colleen Reed had gone missing from that city. After re interviewing witnesses in Colleen's disappearance, investigators were given a description of a tan Thunderbird with brown taillights, a match to McDuff's vehicle. It had been seen speeding away from the car wash going in the wrong direction down a one way street, a signature move of McDuff's, another FU to authority, because, of course, in his world, laws and rules didn't apply to him. Witnesses also said that two men had been seen driving away in the Thunderbird. This was another trademark of Macduff's. Like Roy Dell Green before him, Alva Hank Worley had been enlisted as a sidekick and partner in crime by Macduff. Macduff seemed to enjoy playing out his violent fantasies in front of an admiring stooge, and one who could help him control his victims during the commission of his most brutal crimes. Investigators soon identified Worley as Macduff's sidekick and brought him in for a grilling. After learning that Worley had a young daughter, they appealed to what they hoped was a conscience after he kept insisting he barely knew Macduff and couldn't help them. Pointing out to Worley that he was protecting a man who raped and strangled a girl not much older than his own daughter, the marshal then asked him to picture his own child on the ground with a broomstick across her throat, begging him for help. Worley became visibly distraught upon hearing this and soon spilled the whole story of Colleen Reed's murder to investigators. On December 29th, Worley admitted he had driven into Austin with McDuff to score drugs. As they cruised around town that evening, McDuff spotted Colleen Reed outside of her car, alone at the self-serve car wash. McDuff parked his car in the bay next to hers, and went around the wall out of Worley's sight for a moment. When he returned, the six-foot-three-inch, 250-pound Macduff was holding the petite girl around the throat by one hand. Her feet were dangling above the ground. Please, not me, not me, Worley heard Colleen cry out. Macduff threw her into the back seat of his car, ordering Worley to keep her under control. They drove their victim a few miles out of town, and Macduff pulled the car over and traded places with Worley. Tying her hands behind her back, McDuff raped the girl after first burning her with a lit cigarette. He then returned to the driver's seat and headed towards Temple, while Worley took a turn raping her in the back seat. McDuff stopped on a road just blocks from his parents' house and raped her again. Colleen, battered and bleeding, pleaded with Worley not to let Macduff hurt her again. McDuff shoved her into the trunk of his car, and he and Worley drove back to town. He dropped Worley off at his house, at which time Worley asked McDuff what he planned to do with the girl. He grinned at him and said, I'm going to use her up. By that, Worley knew McDuff planned to kill the girl. Worley was granted immunity in Colleen's rape and murder in exchange for his testimony against McDuff. Colleen's body had still not been found. Now with a confession from Worley implicating McDuff in Colleen Reed's murder, the manhunt intensified. McDuff hadn't been seen in several months. On May 1st, the television show America's Most Wanted featured a segment on the hunt for wanted fugitive Kenneth Allen McDuff. Three days later, a call came in from Kansas City, Missouri. A viewer of the show recognized McDuff as a local garbage truck driver. Later that day, McDuff was arrested at the city dump without incident. When questioned about Colleen Reed's abduction, McDuff claimed he had no knowledge of the girl. He was only in Austin to rob, quote, big-time drug dealers. Worley wanted to abduct a woman, but he'd refused, McDuff claimed. In 1993, McDuff was tried and convicted for the murder of the young mother, Melissa Northrup. He was sentenced to death. In 1994, he was given a second death sentence for the abduction and murder of Colleen Reed, whose body still had not been recovered. McDuff still wasn't talking, and claimed to be innocent of the murders. McDuff was the only condemned man ever released from death row only to kill again, and be sentenced to death a second time. In a death row interview in 1996, McDuff, convicted of five murders over his lifetime, and suspected of perhaps up to a dozen, still expressed no remorse. In the interview, he paints himself as a victim of the justice system, saying that both Roy Del Green and Hank Worley were liars and were the real killers. He claimed that he'd been tried in the media and made out to be a monster, but that none of the cases had sufficient evidence to convict him. He tried to garner sympathy by announcing that he was suffering from hepatitis C and cirrhosis of the liver. He said he didn't know how long he had left before his illness did him in or if he'd be executed first. He wasn't looking forward to his execution, he said, but he also didn't want to die a slow, painful death from liver failure. I've seen a guy die of a liver ailment, he explained. It was one of the worst things I've ever seen in my life. I guess he wasn't counting the time he crushed the life out of Edna Sullivan with a broomstick to the throat, or any of the other brutal acts he'd committed against his victims. Perhaps trying to gain another stay of execution, shortly before his death sentence was to be carried out, McDuff finally decided to talk. While many family members and acquaintances had refused any contact with him, a couple of Macduff's nephews continued to stay in touch and were supportive of their uncle. One of these men, 42-year-old Michael Wayne Royals, was convicted of dealing methamphetamines and sentenced to 15 years in prison. Macduff made a deal with authorities to lead them to the bodies of his victims in exchange for a reduced sentence for Royals. He also received a postponement of his execution date in order to do so. In October 1998, without the public's knowledge, MacDuff was taken from his cell on death row and, under heavy guard, directed police to call in Reed's skeleton, which he'd buried along the Brazos River, south of Waco. After six long years, Lori Bible was finally able to bring her sister's remains home for a proper burial. Earlier, two other victims were found in the same area with the use of maps drawn by MacDuff. The remains of Virginia Moore the woman who was witnessed kicking and screaming in the cab of Macduff's truck, as well as the remains of another woman, Brenda Thompson. Both women had been missing for over seven years. A month later, on November 17, 1998, Kenneth Ellen McDuff was led to the death chamber to be executed by lethal injection. On hand to witness the execution were four of Macduff's nieces and nephews and his spiritual advisor. His mother, Addie, did not attend. When reporters asked her for a statement about her son's imminent execution, she answered that under the advice of her attorneys, she could not respond. Addie maintained her son's innocence, perhaps until she could no longer do so. Once MacDuff led the police to the bodies of his victims, denial was no longer an option. His father had long ago held a more pragmatic opinion about his son. In 1966, when told that Kenneth was being charged with the murder of three teens, he'd answered, if I believed he did what you say, the state wouldn't have to kill him. I'd do it myself. Five friends and family members of McDuff's victims were in attendance, as well as a federal marshal and a Texas Ranger, who helped put Macduff back behind bars. When asked by the warden if he had a final statement, McDuff replied, I'm ready to be released. Release me. A few minutes later, he was dead. Melissa Northrop's mother, Brenda Solomon, who witnessed her daughter's murderer die, said she was very glad he was dead. When asked how McDuff looked, she replied, He looked like the devil. Kenneth Ellen McDuff's body was never claimed by his family. He was buried in the prison cemetery, his grave simply marked with his death row inmate number, X999055. In response to the failure of Texas's state prison system, sentencing laws, and parole procedures that all played a part in Kenneth Allen McDuff's ability to take at least nine more lives after his first death sentence, several reforms were made in the Texas justice system. A $2 billion prison construction project began, which would ultimately increase available beds in its prisons from 38,000 to 140,000. Good time credit, which could be earned by prisoners to reduce their time behind bars, was significantly reformed. Rules for parole eligibility were tightened. Minimum time served before inmates could be considered for parole doubled for violent offenders. And parolees with a history of violence were monitored much more closely after their release. All of these changes became known as MacDuff laws. Another result of the MacDuff case was that Texas began picking up the pace for carrying out executions. Texas still executes more murderers annually than any other state in the Union. That will do it for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. I'll be back next week with another chapter in the series, Three Strikes and You're Dead. Don't forget, you can follow me on Twitter at Upon a Crime and on Instagram and Facebook at Once Upon a Crime Until next time, be good to one another.